Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, feelers, to episode 114, Take Two, with me, Aaron, and returning guest, Blaine Grimes. Hello, darling. Thank you for having me on. It's so lovely to see you. (laughs) Oh, man, I love it. Well, that's right. We already recorded this podcast once, but due to some unfortunate technical issues, that conversation was lost in the wind. Also lost in the wind is my co-host, Patrick, the Frozone to my Mr. Incredible, who is off battling crime somewhere tonight, a.k.a. his wife took away his podcasting supersuit. But Blaine and I are ready to carry on and do our absolute best to pretend like we're having this discussion for the first time. Doing this a second time also allows me a chance to give Blaine a hard time because my Arkansas Razorbacks recently defeated his Texas Tech Red Raiders in the College World Series. How does it feel to lose, my friend? Oh, it feels really bad, especially since they're losing, you know, right now as we record again. So, yeah, double whammy. Sent you into a tailspin. And that listeners is why you got the wonderful Edna mode impression is because Blaine lost a bet and I didn't have to do it. Thankfully. Really? I'm just ashamed. I didn't do it naturally the first time though. So, (laughs) well, in all seriousness, Blaine, it is awesome to have you back on. And it's kind of a reunion for you and I, in a way back in December, 2016, Patrick was doing some mission work in Africa and you stepped into the co-host chair to talk about one of your favorite films, which is episode 36 on the Incredibles. So, of course, we both wanted to have you back on for this, but you got to tell me the truth. You're a new father of a baby girl, and I I have to assume this. Did you go straight home and pretend to shoot lasers out of your daughter's eyes? For sure, definitely, (laughs) and tried to summon the demon with the the cookies and everything, the the demon baby. Oh, good. Um, Does it work? Yeah, it did. did. I've summoned (laughs) the demon baby quite a few times in the past few days, actually, so. Every bit is cute, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I think it's safe to say that we've all been pretty excited about the release of Incredibles 2. But since we've waited 14 years for this, what's another 15 minutes or so? Uh, before we talk about Pixar's superhero film, Blaine, what have you been up to lately? What have you been watching? Sure. Well, I spent some time with my family lately, and they're not big movie people, not in, not in the same way my wife and I are. And so usually when I try to introduce them to a movie, it, it needs to be something that is um, usually pretty action heavy maybe has a bit of history thrown in a little bit of intrigue i will say my family and i have a history of watching the jason bourne movies over christmas um so i decided that now was the perfect time to introduce them to the national treasure franchise so we watched national treasure one and two it was my first time watching them in quite a while actually and it was just so much fun to revisit them i know you and i are both big fans of treasure hunting movies like indiana jones and uncharted and tomb raider and all of that good stuff and national treasure is certainly like right in that uh, comfort zone and it was it was a lot of fun like i i'm always grinning from ear to ear when i watch those kinds of movies and i am 
just reminded of how clever some of the writing is, even even in big silly movies like that. Like this idea of using a Meerschaum pipe as a key to turn a door and and stuff like that. Just just a lot of little fun things like that with a little bit of with a little bit of history thrown in. I know my my grandparents really enjoyed that. It got them actually telling stories, usually in the middle of the movie, about uh, Freemasons and founding fathers and and all of this good stuff. So it was it was big like dumb fun, great family time. And when we're talking about sequels and everything, I I really can't help but wish for a National Treasure three. And I don't think it's realistically going to happen or anything like that, but I, I would kind of, I kind of want that in my heart. Yeah, I would be okay with that. I really enjoy that series as well. You're right. They're just a lot of fun and not a lot of movies are able to get the balance right between the kind of goofy comedy and serious uh, exploration of history. And like, like you said, like they actually address things that really did happen at times and it's just believable enough it's on the edge of kind of uh, illogic that makes you think it could happen <laughs> in some ways and if it was going to happen it would definitely be Nic- nicholas cage so yeah I'm a, sure. I'm a big fan as well well i, I didn't watch anything uh, about treasure hunting but i did watch something that was also a little bit based on history because it was based on a true story uh, and that is tag which also recently released this weekend along with Incredibles 2. And this is the comedy about it. Actually, the real story is about 10 men in Spokane, Washington, very close to me, who grew up playing this game of tag well into their 30s. And what they would do is once a month, it was every May, they would play this game and they would try to tag each other and it would just become an intricate game of running over innocent bystanders in hallways, using deception tactics, wearing costumes. They even had their wives uh, sell them out at times when they got out of hand. And I was mildly interested in this. It looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. And so I decided to go see the screening for this and actually got to meet two of the actual tag brothers. That's what they call themselves, Chris and Beef. Beef, which is a, a perfect name for one of these guys, I would think. But they, they were telling us that The interesting thing is the film is not just about playing a game that it was really for them about human connection and friendship. And I got that out of the film. I I did feel it captured that quite a bit. And it was one of the things that really made me kind of connect with it in a way that was above most comedies. It's a lot of fun. Uh, It has a fantastic cast. They all play their roles very well. And Jeremy Renner, who is this godlike person in their game, he's never been tagged. They're, the whole story revolves around them coming together one last time to go to his wedding and try and get him, right? To make this one last-ditch effort as a collective group. And, of course, all kinds of antics you know, ensue. The film has a, a cool style of shooting, especially when they are in the process of trying to tag Jeremy Renner, where it slows down. And it gets very stylized and focused on Jeremy Renner's character. So the camera kind of spins around him in different ways. And he begins narrating in in his head what is going to happen. So as someone is in slow-mo coming up behind him, he is narrating the scene and then making movements to adjust and become untaggable. And it's very reminiscent of Benedict Cumberbatch in Sherlock solving a crime. It's one of my favorite things about this movie. Uh, it really, you know, I liked it a lot. And if if it didn't have the one thing that 
R-rated comedies tend to have in 2018 and, and in this era, I would have loved it. And it might have been my favorite comedy of the year, but it does go to some sexualized potty humor quite a bit. And there are some things that just are really overplayed in it in that regard that I couldn't ignore, unfortunately. And that brought it down for me because it was the kind of film that is so much fun. It would have been great to take my you know 13-year-old son to. I think he would have had a blast. But unfortunately, they chose not to go the family-friendly route. And I, I don't doubt that these guys actually probably talked this way because honestly, I talked the way they talked quite a bit when I was in high school too. Um, and even probably beyond that. <laughs> but ultimately, kind of it did draw down the film a bit for me and, you know, wasn't great. But it is very good. And if you can stomach a little bit of the sexualized type humor that you see in most comedies today, um, I think that you could really enjoy this one. It made me want to jump over some theater seats, uh, tag somebody on the shoulder on my way out the door and just sprint right out of the theater. So inspiring me to play tag is what it did. And I think that that would make it a success. It sounds like something I'm going to have to catch at some point or another. The ad campaign didn't really do a whole lot for me. And so I kind of brushed it aside, but it sounds like it could be the kind of thing that's fun in the same vein that uh, game night was or something like that. It's and very so- similar. Yeah. And, and we've been blessed honestly to have two that I would consider really good comedies this year in game night and in tag, I might like it a little better than game night, which is probably like sacrilegious for me to say that as a board gamer. <laughs> right. <laughs> but since game night didn't really deal with like the board games you and I love mm-hmm. and used to podcast about, um, I can kind of take it, but yeah, it, it is very much like that. And I think, I think you'll enjoy it. I think, I think most adults will have a good time. You will think about your childhood and you'll immediately realize like you could see yourself playing this game right now and you could also see yourself being injured in the hospital very quickly because you're not (laughs) and not able to dodge people um (laughs) in the way that these guys try to do and they fail to but uh, yeah so yeah check it out uh and listeners you know it's still in theaters if you're looking for a comedy you can't go wrong with tag all right well one quick announcement before we move on to the main review and that is We want to tell you about a podcast each and every week. And this week we are telling you about popcorn theology. So we love them. We listen to them. Here's a little more about them. Listen to this and uh, go check out their show. Have you ever watched a movie or TV show with your friends and noticed all kinds of symbolism, allegory, and Christian themes only to have your friends shrug it off? Well, maybe you need some new friends, but more likely you need popcorn theology. I'm Richard. And I'm David. And we're the hosts of Popcorn Theology, a podcast for movie lovers and theology nerds. Each week we dive into a different movie, TV show, or other topic and explore them from a biblical worldview. Check us out on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher or at popcorntheology.com. And remember, you are not a mindless consumer. All right, Blaine. Well, it's time to talk Incredibles 2. And that means, spoiler alert, because we are going to spoil the film. Uh, Judging by the box office... I'm guessing that most of you, you listening have probably seen it once, twice, or three times already, which is awesome. So hopefully there won't be any problems, but do turn away if you have not seen the film yet and come back and listen to us after you have. Okay, Blaine, you're the guest, so I'm going to let you go first with your one-word takeaway. Sure. Well, as someone who is a co-host of a Star Wars podcast in our contemporary Star Wars <laughs> fandom culture right now, a podcast that... Home on Radio tries to stay very positive 
um, because that's just how Josh, Josh and I are. Uh, one thing I appreciate about being on this podcast is that, um, you have the opportunity to be really positive, uh, and maybe still talk about some of the ways and people, ways people are not being positive and, and why that's not the way I feel about a movie like Incredibles or even why it's not the way I feel about Star Wars. Um, so to stop beating around the bush, the, the word that I came up with for my one word takeaway is timely. And I, I really thought of three ways that I think this movie is, is timely. Number one, I think this movie is timely because a la Star Wars and other things. Anytime you talk about a franchise movie or a sequel today, I feel like if you go on the internets and you are on social media circles, you're going to hear the word franchise fatigue thrown around a whole heck of a lot. I mean, I know we have mutual friends who have a, a podcast called the franchise fatigue podcast. Um, of course they do it very tongue and tongue in cheek. They are not cynical about that. We always, we're always hearing how people are, are going to, going to be tired of these sequels now, right? It's just one more superhero movie. And I think that was, there was even a little bit of that of that buzz going around leading up to the Incredibles two, or at least a little bit of questioning was right. I know this is Pixar. Pixar has a really good reputation, but is this going to be just another, another sequel from Pixar is it, you know, is Pixar really struggling to churn out original films now? Um, or is it just going to be another superhero movie? And I think this movie is timely because it has the, it has the power. I think just in terms of the box office results shows that it has the power to quell these rumors and show that no, we can have movies that are sequels that are dang good sequels in and of their own right that are good standalone films and yes, are building on, uh, building on previous films. And also we can have films that are in similar genres or the same genre as other films and still be very, very good refreshing fresh takes on films and we're going to dive into this show a lot of the reasons why this is a this is a fresh superhero movie and why this is a fresh sequel even as it draws on its predecessor um we'll, we'll dive into all of that all of that good stuff later on in the podcast but i i think that this number one is timely because it it quells some of the the murmurs of franchise fatigue that we inevitably get when we when we have a sequel um, or a superhero movie uh, number two, though, I think that this is a timely movie because it is a movie that is addressing issues of changing, shifting, and fluid gender roles, especially as they relate to 21st century family life. And even more than that, it's doing that in a 1960s setting, which I think is a very, very cool thing to do. Um, and so we'll talk about that some more as well. And then number three, I think it's timely because this movie brings up themes of media addiction, most notably in its and its villain named aptly named the screen slaver will also be talking about Brad bird's affinity for character names and things like that. I, di- I swear I didn't originally plan this as a like preview of what we're going to talk about in the episode, but it just so happens that's, that's the way it worked out. Uh, but this movie deals with issues of media addiction in, uh, in an age where we are increasingly pulled by distractions from various medias all the time. And, uh, I think for those three reasons, uh, it's, it's a timely movie and it's certainly timely for me personally. You mentioned that I am a new father. I am a new father, um, and am loving spending time with, with my baby. My wife is a school teacher. And just recently after she got through with her very all too short maternity leave that she gets from working for public school systems, she went back to school to finish out her teaching term. And I have a job that allows me to teach from home, very fortunately. And so I had the, the pleasure of getting to 
to spend time with my baby one-on-one and take care of her uh, while my wife was off to work. And I say that with full earnestness, it was a ple- it was a joy. It is a time that I treasured and it was so much fun. And at the same time, I can also attest that a lot of those challenges that we see Bob Parr go through in this film are very real. And um, the lack of sleep especially resonates with me. So it's timely for me personally um, as well. So yeah, that, that's my one word takeaway. For well, that's the a Incredibles. lot of words. That's a lot of one words. But it does fit into timely. So that's a good choice. And I love that you have it making multiple appearances or multiple reasons why it can be timely. Um, it's kind of similar to mine, although I'm going to be a lot shorter. My word is packed. And I too say that because it is packed in many ways. Uh, I feel that the film is, it's action packed. It's got so many great animated sequences like the Mrs. Incredibles train chase at the beginning, um, the use of voids portals and the climax, the incredible helicopter scene. I love all of those. It's thematically packed uh, because it has this core concept, as you mentioned, of a, of a role switch where Mrs. Incredible is becoming the face of the superheroes and Bob is having to deal with how to stay home and take these parenting challenges on, but it also does address many cultural issues, modern social issues that are happening in the world today. It's like Brad Bird has a lot to say about a lot of things in this movie. Um, It also is character packed. There's a, a ton of new characters, new superheroes, not only a villain, but two a pair of brother and sister that are kind of uh, in addition to the villain or side by side with the villain in many ways. So there's a lot of new folks to get to know in this. It's just packed with everything packed with emotion, packed with humor, and it's overflowing with incredibleness. If you ask me, so it's packed in a good way. It didn't bother me at all. All right. I'm going to read Patrick's one more takeaway real quick, because even though he could not be here for this re-recording, I want to capture a little bit of his feelings, and this is one way we can do that. His one-word takeaway was groan, and he says this, One of the biggest surprises to me about this sequel so many years in the making was how adult it felt. There were times during my experience where I thought, man, that's a pretty intense scene, or whoa, that's pretty weighty emotionally. It had those familiar tones with the voice cast and the personalities from the original, but it also had what I thought was a significant amount of tonal shift from its predecessor. It felt more mature in many different ways. And got to agree with him there. Well, Blaine, as we move on, let's talk about this first. What makes The Incredibles special in a world of superhero movies today? Because when the first film came out, In 2004, uh, this film existed before things like Iron Man and the MCU. It existed before the completion of Nolan's Batman trilogy. Nowadays, we get three to four new superhero films every single year. And that's on top of our normal blockbuster slate of other stories. And yet, The Incredibles 2 seems to be resonating with audiences extremely well so why do you think that is i actually in good true teacher fashion thought of three reasons again and this is the last time i'm gonna do one two three it is he's gonna have three (laughs) connecting points folks make sure you stick around for that oh yeah i do this on home on radio every week too it's it's just like a thing i like to i like to bundle a bunch of things into one thing no but i I did think of three reasons that i I think this movie is different from uh, every other superhero movie that comes out 
Number one, you're going to speak to Aaron. So I'll just mention briefly. I think it's above all, it is a character centered film. The film actually opens not only right where the first one ends, but it ends not with a big action set piece first and foremost, but with an action set piece grounded in character interactions. The The entire film is, uh, begins with a character interaction between Violet and Tony, right? A, a character interaction that ended the first film. And so every single action set piece in this movie is grounded in some sort of stakes for the character. Um, every single situation has does something to build character or enhance character or challenge characters, force them to grow or confront their own weaknesses in certain ways. It never feels like it's just spectacle for spectacle's sake or set piece for set pieces sake. And so many superhero movies, even really good superhero movies can feel like they just jump from set piece to set piece to set piece. Again, that doesn't make them bad inherently. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this movie seems to be very much focused on, characters. And I think that's something people are hungry for. I think that's one reason why there was, by and large, a positive reaction to The Last Jedi, for instance, because it was it focused more on characters um, as a film. Um, but I won't talk about Star Wars anymore because that's a whole other thing. But number two, I think it's also culturally relevant. We've mentioned, and we'll talk about more, the role reversal that goes on in the film. I think it's relevant because of that. I've talked about media addiction and the screen slaver and all of those things. Um, I think that's something that makes a film stand out. Again, it is okay. Well, we would say that entertainment is never mindless, right? <laughs> would say that all entertainment has a value. Nothing's just completely throwaway. But when something is very specifically culturally relevant, um, I think it stands out from the crowd, right? When it's it's not just like every other superhero movie. Like, for instance, I have not seen Ant-Man versus the Wasp. Seems like it's sort of billing itself as just kind of a fun, fun another fun heist movie or something like that. Nothing wrong with it. We need those kinds of movies. Um, we also need things that are very culturally relevant. Number three, I think that this movie, along with its predecessor, has a lot of staying power. I'm going to talk about the the Incredibles alongside Incredibles 2 a lot in this film. Because I think in order to appreciate Incredibles 2 in all of its fullness, you have to talk about Incredibles, the Incredibles. Um, because they build on one another so stinking tightly. There are so many scenes that echo and complement one another in the two films. But in my personal history with Incredibles, and you can actually even go listen to it, and I've talked about it even more since then, so you can hear how my own interaction and experience with The Incredibles has evolved. It truly has. I I used to watch The Incredibles and maybe identify with with Bob feeling like I'm you know just stuck going through the motions or something. Maybe now I identify more with them as parents instead of as what they where they are in their careers. Right, the film has grown with me, and. Even though I've only lived with Incredibles 2 for a couple of weeks now, um, I'm going to live with it for a lot longer. And I can already see that I identify right now with Bob where he is because that's what my life situation has been like most recently, right? Stay-at-home dad taking care of the kids. But even then, I identify with – I really resonate emotionally with his interaction with Jack-Jack because my baby is much more closer to Jack-Jack's age. I don't have a teenage daughter. She will be a teenager at some point. And then I suspect I will come back in and watch Incredibles 2 and just be blown away by how much that relationship resonates with me. Um, so I think it has staying power. I don't think this is a movie that is just 
uh, here today and gone tomorrow. I, I really think that this, like Incredibles, could be something that we're still talking about 10, 14 years down the road. So those are my three reasons. Well, those are great. I agree with your first two wholeheartedly, and I agree partially with your third. The last thing you said, I'm not sure that I think this will be in the conversation a decade or more from now, and I don't think it has anything to do with a lack of quality or a lack of it being deserving. I question audiences' attention spans at this point in history, and with the plethora of content that is coming out constantly – we live in a in a different world, uh, even just 14 years removed from the original Incredibles, where it's here today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, we deal with this specifically as movie critics, as podcasters, as film lovers, even who go to see new movies every week. It's you have you have a week to take something in and to enjoy it. And then you're moving on to the next thing. Um, it's a challenge, right, to, to hold on to. It's very rare that something even sticks with you two weeks, much less longer than that. Um, and so I, I, I do hesitate. I do wonder how long people will remember this um, as opposed to the original, which came out at a time when there was less competition and so it stuck out more. Uh, but we will see. For me, I, I got to say domesticity is my number one reason why I think that it is able to succeed today and why I think it's different, what separates it from the the entirety of the rest of the superhero genre. Um, the fact that we have an animated version of the best Fantastic Four that we will ever see probably on screen, um, I think it probably is better than a real Fantastic Four movie could ever reach because it's they're all an actual family. They're all blood. And we get to see the different dynamics. And I, I love the age differences in the kids because, like you said, you can relate with Jack Jack right now, but you know that as you go through time, you'll be able to relate to things that – dash deals with and things that violet deals with just as i am able to now you know relate to this in a way as a, a parent of two teenagers uh in a different way than i related to the incredibles when it came out and i had babies um and it was much more about jack jack for me at the time and the idea of what my kids could become and now it's about what my kids are but i just think that getting to see our own lives projected onto a superhero uh, the domestic side of our lives is a very important thing for many of us. And I also love that the characters uh, specifically want to use their powers and they want to do that because it's who they are, all of them, from the kids to the new heroes. And that's something that I don't think we see a lot of in other superhero film genres we see characters that are kind of forced to use their powers for defense or for fighting of some sort it's it's almost never just because i have this power and i want to use it sometimes we get a montage of that or a quick fun scene the one that comes to my mind is uh, i think it's an age of ultron where thor tries to pick up well everybody else tries to pick up thor's hammer um that's a lot of fun but for the most part we see them just using their powers to fight. And in these films, including this one, we get to see the characters just just using them because they're fun. And, and I really enjoy that about it. So I think that separates it quite a bit from the originals. or Not the originals, from the rest of the superhero genre. Well, th this role reversal uh, 
concept is the biggest kind of main theme, I think, in the film. So let's just talk about that a little bit. It, you know, so Mrs. Incredible gets this opportunity um, to become the face of supers in a world that still does not accept them. No matter what they do, kind of similar to the arc of the Avengers, they continue to cause destruction unintentionally, but it's a byproduct of the fight. And I love the way this is displayed with them all going after the underminer. And there's this, this uh, congressional hearing <laughs> where Bob is being interviewed and he's getting frustrated because they're asking him these questions and they're like, did you catch the guy? No. Did you protect the money? No. You know, did you, and he can't answer yes to any of this, right? It, all he has to show for his efforts is destruction. And it made a lot of sense. And, uh, so things get switched and they want to use her. And so now he has to come to grips with being the stay-at-home parent. And I'll tell you, I really enjoyed watching him go through this progression. I felt like he was an accurate portrayal of a husband who obviously loves his wife, but selfishly has an issue because he's proud. He's proud of his past. He's proud of what he thinks he can do and he wants to contribute. There's a great scene with them in bed that I really enjoy um, where she's asking him to support her. And he's just like, you know, you've got to do this for us. And she's like, no, you want me to do it for you. And he's like, well, yes, so that I can do this. He wants to have the ability to go and be a superhero in the open again because of what she accomplishes. So it's not even so much about her in the beginning. And I think that's very real realistic. It is. That's one thing I really appreciate about this film. I mean, you said the domesticity is, is a thing that sets it apart. I think you hit the nail on the head. And the realism with which Bird portrays family relationships. So they are a family. The Incredibles are a family. They clearly love one another. They, they, they really do. And they have some very tender and very affectionate moments. They also fight a lot. I really like, and I appreciate about this about the Incredibles as well as Incredibles 2, is that they have scenes where the parents are fighting openly. I think that's a good thing, right? That's, I think so many depictions of, of family units and parents in media are unrealistic. They're idealistic. Um, they're too idealistic. They're too, they're, they're too perfect. Uh, sort of the 1950s model, right? And and this is very much not 1950s, it's 1960s. And I appreciate that Bird shows in a kid for, that many in a film that many kids are going to see that parents fight and that parents and siblings can fight with one another and disagree strongly about things and still love one another and still work together. Um and again like that that domesticity, like that domestic conflict is the hook on which the, like the hinge on which the entire narrative turns. I mean, really you, you want Elastigirl to figure out who Screenslaver is and you want supers to be uh, back in the limelight as Winston Dever says, but you also very, very, very much care about Tony getting his memory back or about Violet and Tony's relationship getting repaired and about what that's going to do to Bob and Violet's relationship. You care about that just as much as you do this big mystery that's, you know, quote unquote, at the center of the film. Um, I think that's I think that's a very smart thing. Um, and I think that, I mean, it makes for some good feels in this film, for sure. It does. And I think that that aspect of it. 
along with this idea of the role reversal and what we see Mrs. Incredible specifically go through, um, it's it's nice. It's it's non manipulative in a way that I, I feel like it's very natural. And you know, Pixar movies in general will operate under this thing called the Pixar punch. That's what our friend Don Shanahan calls it. This big moment that every Pixar movie has that makes every single person cry. And I don't feel like this film ever reaches that. I don't think there's one thing. I think it's a series of different emotional moments that people can relate to. And one of those honestly is when Mrs. Incredible finally gets her new bike and her, her incredible cycle shows up and the kids are like, what do you mean? You had a, you had an incredible cycle. And she's like, yeah, there's lots of things. I had a Mohawk, you know, and, and it, you realize that she has this past that has been suppressed when she decided to make the choice to become a mother and that's okay. And that, that was her choice. And she has no regrets from that whatsoever, but yet you also get to see the joy of her reliving that, you know, and I think that's something that we can all kind of resonate with because We've all had something in our lives, most likely, that we've had to give up, whether it be forever or whether it be for a time period. You know, I guarantee right now as a new father that you don't get to do as much of the fun hobbies that you normally would do. I doubt that you and your wife get to play as many two-person board games because you get interrupted all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're looking for a lot of like 10-minute board games. (laughs) Exactly. And so when you get that back, you're going to have sort of a – an experience kind of like Mrs. Incredible because it's this joyful feeling of like getting to fully throw yourself into something that is defining for who you are, something you love so much. And so I love getting to see her do that. And then especially just how it carries out throughout the theme of the, the film, the, the whole duration. Um, she really comes into her own as the face of this. And I think by the end we see that this is the right choice, right? That yeah. she is the one because if Bob had tried to do this, it would have, never even come close to working. It would have fallen apart in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I mean, even in the design, the way the characters are designed and their powers, uh, not Bob Parr, um, Brad Bird talks about, uh, talked about this with the Incredibles, how he designed Elastigirl to be like a, uh, be like the stereotype of a mom who has to be flexible because she's pulled in so many different directions by her kids and job and, and husband and stuff like that. And Bob is like, He's bigger, he's bulkier, he's the muscle, right? And all that stuff. And, and they actually poke fun of that in, in dialogue in the film, like you mentioned. And I think it's interesting how you see those, how those qualities um, work to their benefit or detriment in this role reversal. Because here you have Elastigirl in a situation where her flexibility literally pays off, but also her like metaphorical flexibility allows her to take to superhero work a little bit quicker. Um, because parenting really is superhero work in its in its own right and uh bob has to learn how to handle things a bit more delicately instead of just sort of coming at everything with brute force right that's that's the problem that's why he can't be the that's one of the reasons he can't be the face of of the new super movement because he just wants to come at everything and 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 smash it to smithereens and he tries to do that in his attempt to repair his relationship with violet Right, just brute force, like, we're going to go to this kid's diner, I'm going to force them together, and somehow this is going to fix everything. Um, and he has to learn to take a more tactful, um, more kind-hearted and compassionate approach. Um, so I think this role reversal really, really works. Um, 
in addition to it, like it works on an emotional level. It works on a level we can all relate to in addition to being obviously very, very relevant uh, when we're talking about a, a period of time in the 1960s when women were in the workforce in greater numbers. And certainly they're in the workforce in greater numbers now than they were in the 1960s. Um, I think it's, um, I think it works incredibly well on a number of levels. Incredibly well. Incredibly yeah. well. Oh, goodness. Yay for puns. But yeah, I, I do. I just, I totally agree. Even now to the point where, you know, Helen accurately also has to deal with letting go of parenting. And, you know, it's not just easy for her to just right. go off and be a superhero. You know, she needs to know what's happening to the kids. She's worried and she has to learn to trust Bob. Uh, by the same token as he has to, you know, gain that trust because he has to earn it. Uh, and he does, of course, over time, but it, it takes time and, and it takes painful moments to get there. Well, let's dig into some of the social political themes that are uh, running throughout this. Uh, I'm going to just do it this way. Why don't you just pick one that you thought about the most after you watch the movie? And we'll start with that one. Sure. I want to pick up on that, that thread that I mentioned earlier about the screen slaver and, and media addiction, because I think that is, that's something that's very sort of on the nose in the film. Um, unfortunately, Patrick's not here again because he had a lot good to say about how this film was packed and how that was both a good and a bad thing. And I completely agree with what, um, with what he says there. Um, because I feel like this idea of media addiction and the, then the whole screen slaver character is a very good thing in the film and the film's biggest weakness in my opinion. So I'll start with the weakness first because we like to keep positivity in the foreground here. And I very much enjoyed this film. This is not a a movie killer for me or anything, but I think one of the biggest weaknesses with the film is that it takes this very interesting screen slaver idea. And I, I love the voiceover that the screen slaver character has when Helen is Elastigirl is first chasing him through the build, chasing him through the buildings. Um, and he talks about how we, we don't play games. We watch game shows. We don't talk to one another. We watch talk shows and all of these things. Some really good, really insightful things, some really good commentary. And the, Ostensibly, the screensaver's goal is to pull society out of its listlessness, out of its laziness, out of its out of this media addiction. That's what that's what uh, Ellen, Evelyn Devers wants. But by the time we get around to the end of the movie, that's never really resolved in a, in my opinion in a satisfactory way. She is arrested. And that's good because she's a good villain because she's right in principle. What she's saying, a lot of what she's saying is absolutely right. People trade quality for ease. People, right, were addicted to media, media influences in tons of negative ways, as well as some positive ways. But she, she's right about a lot of things. It's the way she's going about it. That's obviously very, very horrible, but she's caught. And then there, it never comes full circle where we have to confront the supers or society as a whole have to confront this idea that they're becoming too dependent on media or have been crippled by it. Right. They never have to confront this. And I wish that had come full circle more, but I think that comes into some of what Patrick had mentioned about the film being just very packed. That being said, I do think 
I still think that that voiceover is just an awesome moment and still works great at that moment in the film and leaves plenty of room for discussion. This idea that media shapes the way we think, act and react to things. And there's a really, another really good example of that in the film. And I think it's when Winston is first trying to like hook all of the supers or, or well, it's Elastigirl, uh, Mr. Incredible and Frozone into his, into his whole business deal. He says, look, this is, you saved a city from the underminer today, but that's not what people saw. And he pulls up the news footage and shows that the news footage is showing all the rubble and all the wreckage and all of this stuff. And that's something like ripped straight from our headlines, right? A lot of times we see what me, what news corporations want us to see and news corporations are not always fair and balanced. Sometimes they have their own agenda. Sometimes, right. Sometimes they want you or all the time they want you to see things a certain way. And so we're shaped by that. And I think this movie for younger viewers, especially maybe makes them think about some of those things in a way they haven't before. Um, I just wish it pushed it all the way. I would have rather it picked that thread and left a couple of others out and carried that one all the way through for me personally. You know, I can see that. And I, I don't know that I I would have been bothered by that at all. In fact, I might've preferred that. It did not bother me the way it was done. However, and it's funny because I was, I was actually waiting for you to finish your thought so that I could say a certain thing. And you said it as I was waiting. And that is that it's wonderful for kids to see this, for kids to subtly receive this message of, listen, your screen is controlling you because now it's happening from a villain on a TV screen and in a superhero movie. It's not happening from your mom and your dad. It's kind of backing that up in a way. And I, and I love it because it's it's not overly preachy, I don't think. It, and it is brought up in a way that's kind of, you're right, it doesn't get taken to a full conclusion. But I like the idea that it's mentioned because kids will pick up on that. And they will go, oh, maybe they'll they'll think about that and say, well – I can see where this could go. You know, I could turn into a villain in a superhero movie if I don't get off my iPad when mom says. Um, So I do like that. Uh, I also really love the theme of uh, the fake news idea or not necessarily fake news, but choice of news and what is shown versus what actually happens. I think it's one of those great deals where a character has great intentions once endeavors in creating these suit cams that she's going to wear that are going to give the public access to everything that she does. And it creates again, another, another ethical dilemma that's not super explored, but it it ties in culturally uh, to issues that we deal with today of police brutality and suit cams on cops and what we get to see versus what we do don't and understanding context, understanding all of these subtle things that might go into an act where we just see it on a screen and we don't have, we weren't there. Uh, we weren't in that situation, so we can't fully evaluate it, but yet we try to. Uh, it also reminded me of a book and a movie that came out last year of the book called the circle in which this is a big deal where part of that 
story is about creating cameras that are all over the world that can see everything that happens. And the idea is if everybody knows they were being watched at every single moment of every single day, it would deter almost all crime and everyone would be on their best behavior. Right. Um, and so I found it kind of, kind of close to that in a way as well. Like if, if we were trying to show everybody everything, well, how would people act differently if that was the case? So I thought that was fun and a nice way to bring up some things that families could talk about when they go home. And I think that's what you were saying earlier is it doesn't necessarily give us a fully fleshed out plot on any one of these things, but it brings up things that moms and dads can go home and talk to their kids about. Yeah. Um, in a way that they can now understand. For sure. And I, I, the one reason that I wish it would have gone full circle a little bit more too is because I think it's important to be careful. It's so easy to just dog on media all the time when one media is, I mean, books are media, right? Lots of things are media. It doesn't just mean digital screens or something like that. Um, we talk about how all the negative effects of media. I think it's important to be aware of the negative effects media may be having us or the negative things. Sometimes it's not even that media itself has negative effects is that it draws the negative things out of us or helps draw those things out. It's good to be aware of those things, but it's also something that can be really cool. Like you and I have met and hung out in person because we met online. That wouldn't happen apart from apart from media. That wouldn't happen apart from any of that. We wouldn't be sitting here doing this. So it's not all negative. And I know, like, Brad Bird is a smart guy. He's a smart writer. I know that he has a more nuanced take on technology than, oh, just kids and all, kids and their smartphones. And the film, maybe because it, that thread is a bit incomplete, can maybe feel like that a touch. And I would have liked to see some more of that nuance come in, but still good conversation, right? It's yeah. I'm glad kids will be thinking about these things. Um, Definitely. So, you know. Well, the other one that I would say I'd like to point out is just that this whole film seems to kind of have a theme of inclusion and equality running throughout it, especially with regards to the new supers uh, who are coming out as supers and giving themselves names. That's a big thing in this movie is they are taking pride in giving themselves a superhero name and owning that. Patrick and I talk about that a lot on our show, the importance of names and uh, their power, both for the person and also for people who are using them, uh, others. And it speaks a lot about this representation uh, for heroes of all kinds. And I think, I think that's a parallel to the world today. Um, you know, we, we see heroes in this film that are probably LGBT. Uh, we see heroes in this film that are disabled, that are elderly, um, all kinds of marginalized groups, um, heroes of, of different ethnicities, heroes of color, um, hero women that are more, more female heroes that are a part of this. So I loved that aspect of it. And I thought it was done in a very subtle way. Um, that's a topic that can be overly heavy handed in Hollywood to the point that it almost is a turnoff to me because it's like they're trying to use the movie to so to tick all these boxes off, yeah. Yeah. but I didn't feel that way at all. And I actually really enjoyed the characters, but yet we get a cool scene of where we understand, you know, the importance of this to them and them telling, you know, Mrs. Incredible, like how 
inspired they are by what she's doing because it's giving them a way to potentially own their identity and be who they are. And that's, that's important for people. And it's a big thing right now. So I thought that that was cool that the film dealt with that. And maybe actually wonder for you, did any of these new heroes stand out to you above and beyond the others? I was a big fan of Screech, the owl character. I don't really have any reason why a lot of these characters, aside from Void, who is an obvious favorite, aren't super fleshed out. But I just thought he was an interesting to have to have a walking owl who screeched a lot and turned his head around. It was just entertaining. It was entertaining to watch him as he was animated and, and just doing things. And I loved that there's a point where he screams and I think it's Dash's face or something. And I always love when a character does that. Yeah, I do too. And the way his head turns around, um, it makes you kind of wonder, like, is he an owl? Is he a human? You know, I'd almost like more background on him. Like, yeah. what is what is he? Um, Void definitely stands out to me. She's the one that gets the most screen time and the most to do. Um, but, you know, I just really enjoy her character. I've heard her referred to online as a ripoff of Blink from X-Men, which is Howard's Wise, correct? And also referred to as a ripoff of Doctor Strange, which I think is a lot less correct. Um, but I actually, the first thing I thought of was, hey, she's like a living portal gun. I guess that just mm-hmm. shows what Glados. I am into, yeah. right? Is yeah, the portal <laughs> video game. Um, but I loved it. I love the implementation of her power. And like I had mentioned earlier, that last scene, that climax is so cool because she's trying to figure out how to use it throughout the film. You know, she's able to use it in certain situations, but this is a matter of life and death. She's trying to save Evelyn from falling and help her get up there to stop, uh, or sorry, save Helen and help her get to Evelyn. And she's messing up, right? But she keeps at it and she's able to succeed and it's a big deal for her. And I really enjoyed seeing that. And I, I thought that she was the one character that I, I really wanted to see more of. Like I would love if there's an Incredibles 3 for Void to be a part of the superhero world, just like Frozone and get to to see how she impacts it and it also gave me uh, you know just a lot of i don't know a lot of enjoyment out of getting to see their powers but not feeling like they were ever overshadowing the incredibles um as a family because there's a balance to be had and when you have mr incredible who you've got to give some big moments and you've got mrs incredible who has to have some big moments um, which she does have a lot of, and they're awesome. You've got to get Dash and Violet and all of these people, Frozone. They all have to have something to do. When you introduce all these new characters, it's it's a tough thing because if you're going to introduce them, you've got to show us what they can do, first of all, right? I mean, they, there's no reason to give us the heroes if you don't show us what they do. But yet they can't take up too much screen time. <laughs> and so I thought it was pretty well done in that regard. Uh, it could have, the balance is tough. And I felt like it was a good one. It really was. And I, I'd seen a couple of things on, again, online, uh, since we last recorded even, and uh, talking about s- some criticisms of the, their superpowers or something that I'm with you. That didn't bother me at all. I mean, how is Dash any different than Flash, right? Aside from origin story, right? How is, how is Bob different from Superman or, or whatever? How is Elastigirl really different from Plastic Man? Um, I don't know. Their superpowers I thought were, 
I don't think there's supposed to be anything wildly inventive or new or groundbreaking or anything. No, like it's that. it's really more about how you use them, right? Like how yeah. are they used in the story and how does that affect a character's emotional arc as a person and as a human being? Yeah. And you're going to see, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. And that definitely is true of these superheroes. Like you said, we've got these characters from hundred of years now of, of character creation almost, you're going to revisit some powers. There's only so many things we can do. Um, it's, it's all about doing it in a way that makes sense in the story you're telling. And yeah. I think especially when you're telling a retro story like this too, mm-hmm. it's clearly supposed to harken back to some of those. Yeah. I wonder actually stories. if people catch that. I know you've mentioned it several times and I wonder if newer audiences who maybe don't pick up on the fact that there's a supposed to be this retro feel. I wonder if they just think, Oh, this is set in 2018. Cause it has a, you know, a train that's uh, an elevated train and it has this big yacht and these, this new age tech. I wonder if they just assume it's like today's day. Yeah. I mean, it took me a long time. I think it was my wife who actually first made me see that it was, that it was a retro setting. That was a 60 setting. It blew my, like now it's the most obvious thing in the world to me. I'm like, how could I have ever not seen this? Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a pretty cool thing uh, that works really well thematically with the films too. Um, I would also say I wanted to talk about some of the echoes that this movie has to the first, because I think they make that viewing experience so much more enjoyable. Like just the narrative itself has some similar echoes. For instance, the, the first film, really the first big uh, family interaction is a, a, is a fight scene at the dinner table. Uh, a pretty memorable one, right? Where uh, Frozone finally comes in to make things go back to normal again. And the same thing happens here in Incredibles 2. Uh, the first interaction they have after after the big action set piece and they defeat the Underminer is that they fight at the dinner table um, about about very different things. But they're they're going through those motions again. You were talking about Void. I really like her and how her character arc is somewhat similar to Violet's character arc in the first film in terms of her having trouble using her powers to her fullest extent. And I think that whole scene where she is trying and trying and trying to portal Elastigirl up onto the plane is very, very similar deliberately, of course, to um, Violet's attempt to create a force field around the airplane mm-hmm. in, in the first film. There are just a lot of little things like that, that are, that make this viewing experience so really enjoyable. Yeah. They, they pair together. I mean, this is like what animated, what films in general, this is how films should work. If they're going to have sequels, Yeah, you know, they should, they should go in a, in a way where you can watch them back to back and enjoy them fully. And, and I love the fact that this starts off literally at the end of the first film, I had rewatched the second time I watched Incredibles two. I rewatched the Incredibles first and realized just how perfectly they line up. That's really a neat thing. Yeah, um, I I also had the action stand out. I mentioned that earlier. The helicopter scene for me just takes. Mm-hmm. I could not believe the way that it flows, the way that it looks. For this to be animated is incredible. Uh, gosh, now every time I use that word, it's going to feel like I'm cheating. But it, Brad Bird's ability to take what he can do in live action animation, and he has done in Mission Impossible series even, in Ghost Protocol, and transfer that into this film made it feel 
like a mashup of a superhero movie, a James Bond movie, and a Mission Impossible movie, all at the same time. And, and it, it was it was wonderful. I, I loved every bit of it. Even Giacchino's score kind of nodded to these Mission Impossible and James Bond themes at different times, and I thought that was just awesome and subtle uh, way to do that. But yeah, I mean, the, the helicopter scene is just mind-blowing for me. There's the one with her on the bike uh, in the train at the very beginning. Yeah. The, the design of the cycle where she pulls herself apart and then comes together and pops together to use it to repel herself. Like that is just so inventive. And then when she goes in the tunnel and she has to split herself up against the wall, both with the the two tires of the uh, Incredible cycle, that's incredible. Um, the yacht scene, I love that was the James Bond moment when Dash is sitting in the Incredible and he's like, oh man, I wish this could turn into a boat and go in the water. And then like yeah. the car turns into a boat. That's straight out of James Bond, man. Yep. And especially going after a villain on a yacht. Like how much more Bond can it get? Mm-hmm. Um, and my personal favorite is the um, is the scene where she's chasing Screensaver for the first time. They have a genuinely creepy moment in in that room. Like genuinely creepy. Um, and Is this then, one that can cause epilepsy? Yeah. Then when he confronts her, these flashing lights turn everything into almost a, a 2D flip book sort of effect. And it's, it's just really awesome. It's the kind of thing that can, can really only truly be done in that sense and play with dimensions in, in animation in that way. And I loved the heck out of it, even though, yeah, definite epilepsy warning if you're, if you're prone. I, it's also, it's just hard to remember. At this point, I think when we're hashtag blessed with, you know, Mission Impossible movies uh, out the wazoo that are really good, that Bra- it was Brad Bird who revitalized Mission Impossible. Before Brad Bird did Ghost Protocol, we had Philip Seymour Hoffman, and which Philip Seymour Hoffman is great, but um, we had everybody just running around in plastic masks uh, mm-hmm. to the point that it was just laughable. And slow motion doves. Yeah, and slow motion doves. Um, yeah. And Brad Bird's... Like we wouldn't be celebrating Mission Impossible this summer, uh, were it not right. for Brad Bird. That's right. He he changed the trajectory to what it is now with Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and now Fallout, and turned it into this thing that is has become people's like most anticipated movie of the summer over yep. a Jurassic Park movie and over this even you know yep. over Star Wars movies. It's wild. It is. Right. He, he his action scene sequences are so coherent. Yeah. You just never feel like you're cutting. Um, with these quick one or two seconds cuts and you have no idea what's going on. It's just, it's very precise. Mm-hmm. And very I think detailed. attention to details a lot. It is. He does a great job of in, with that motorcycle chase. He has this wide shot where you just see the ramp that she's about to drive up. So when you cut close and it's a lot of quick shots, you know exactly where she is. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. I could gush about his, his action directing prowess all day long. Well, as the last main thing I wanted to discuss, um, villains, we talked about the screen slaver as a cipher, as a, as a kind of a mask and, and what that intention was. Um, so I don't want to talk, there's not really too much to say here, but you know, Evelyn and Winston, I thought were a great pairing. Uh, Winston's idealism and his desire to be good is, is really refreshing to see in a movie because you had him paired with Evelyn, who's kind of secretly being a villain. But like you said, She's got a point. And what I enjoyed the most about these two new characters is the way in which their relationship works and how it, 
it was how their personas became created uh, as related to their parents' death with him retelling that story was almost my connecting point because that was a very powerful moment. And I was like, holy cow, this is in a kid's movie. Like it shows like this house getting broken into people murdered. And, you know, he believes in the idealism that superheroes, it's not their fault because if it, they were legal, they would have answered the phone and they would have saved his parents. Her take is fortunately, no, they put their, their faith in someone that could not save them. They should have done it themselves. It's a very self-centered thing. And she's, they're both just sad that their parents are gone at the end of the day, right? That's what it boils down to. And I love that at the end of their relationship, when she's being put into the car, like he thanks Mrs. Incredible for the outcome of that. Like that she's going, he, she tells him, she's like, she's going to go to jail for a long time. And he's like, and I'm okay with that. But he's just glad she's alive because she's still his sister and they still love each other and they understand each other. I, I just think it's a, a really wonderful relationship it is they've grown on me as as a villain pair since i've seen this movie and they continue to grow on me this is kind of a this is not my connecting point but this is a ridiculously small moment that i absolutely adore in this film so you have to indulge me for a second but when they're telling that story after he gets done and he's staring off in the glass and you see his reflection and she says, or they just could have just called the, you know, gone down to the basement or whatever. He shouts, I disagree strongly and it echoes. And I, I love Bob Odenkirk's delivery there. And that echo, it, it, it's like I said, it's a ridiculously small thing to love, but it just feels very adult. And there is a lot of power in just that, that one line and the way it's delivered. And then obviously sets up the uh, Bob Oden or not Bob Winston Devers, Bob Odenkirk's character is obviously the foil for the villain. Like you think he's going to, you're supposed to think he's the main villain initially. And I like that you have, he is just like a well-meaning, he's a misguided, but well-meaning person who has become so blinded and maybe even corrupt to a certain extent by his, his, status and his power and, and all of this stuff that he um he can't see how to how to write the ship literally <laughs> yeah no kidding. I, that wasn't intentional but <laughs> he um and, and then you have you have evelyn who who yeah is definitely grown bitter uh, has been embittered by all of this and i like how they uh, patrick mentioned this too it's fantastic that they are a family unit and you and I both talked about how that's one of the things that sets this film apart. And the fact that you have not just a family of supers, but a family of villains in this one, I think works really well. And you get to see what a, a functional family uh, works like with the Incredibles, even though they're functional in the truest sense where they still fight and everything. Mm -hmm. And you get to see what a, what a dysfunctional family looks like with, uh, with the Devers. And it's uh it's, it's a good, it's a good match. I love it. Well, did you catch the A113 Easter egg in this one? I did catch the A113. I was a little sad. It was so, I feel Blatant. like that one was a bit, <laughs> so yeah. obvious. Yeah, I thought it was pretty obvious too. Uh, listeners, for those of you who don't know, um, for many, many films now, maybe the entire Pixar catalog, I don't want to say that and be wrong, but I think that's the case. Um, there has been this Easter egg where the filmmakers have worked A113 in some form into the film. Sometimes you'll see it in a license plate. Uh, I think in various films this time it was on the movie screen at the end when uh, the family pulls up with Tony in the car and they're going to get out and Violet's going to go on her date. The film is called dementia 
113 and the A is capitalized with the 113. And what this is is a reference uh, to a classroom at the Cal Institute of Arts where many famous people were animation students, such as the former Pixar boss uh, John Lasseter, uh, Tim Burton, and then Brad Bird himself. So it's a fun little nod that they do to work into their films. I think it's just, I love stuff like that, man. It is. My favorite Easter egg in this film that I saw was the InsuraCare. Bob drinks from an InsuraCare mug, mug. right? Yes, I know. I noticed that too. I love that. That was great. Um, I like when Dash runs around, by the way. I, I don't know why I never mentioned this earlier, but like when Dash runs around and he's got that remote, Oh yeah, um, and he's just just wrecking the house like completely willy nilly with no regard for anything. I thought that was just really realistic. And then we haven't talked about Jack Jack and the Raccoon, but that's probably the funniest scene in this movie for me. I could not believe the hilarity of this baby fighting a raccoon. The the fact that he's it's it's played for so many laughs, but I mean it has a very important you know reveal which is showing us all these different powers that Jack-Jack has. But just this raccoon man that will not back down and wants to like put the Dukes up and fight, at least until you know, the laser eyes come out. But it it's so much fun, um, all the parts of that. Do you have a favorite part of that scene, that montage? I really like when he turns – after he's got the raccoon tied up, he turns into flaming baby. Oh, yes. Throw, angrily throwing the lawn chairs. <laughs> Tossing them to the side. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Like even then the raccoon like wants to fight back. Mm-hmm. And it's not until those laser eyes come out that he's like, all right, enough. That's it. I'm done. Yep. Um, that and then Bob when uh, Jack-Jack has the remote and he's like – comes back and he's showing Dash and Violet what's going on and Frozone and – he takes him out into the yard and he starts, you know, doing the laser baby, shooting it. I yeah. loved that. I thought that was so much fun. And you could just tell on his face the joy that he was having in that moment, even though he's like, okay, let's, we can't play with the baby. Like, but he wants to, um, which is echoed later when I think it's Violet that picks up Jack Jack and uses him at the end of the movie to shoot him. And she actually says pew pew as she's yeah. <laughs> shooting Jack Jack's yep. eyes. Oh, it's just what. I totally think Jack Jack is a key to to one of the themes Brad Bird deals with in this movie that we haven't talked about a lot and that Brad Bird deals with in every single film just about that he directs. And it's this idea that it is the outcasts, those who are marginalized in society are the ones who are ultimately going to be your source of salvation. Obviously the supers in general are are the biggest example of that where they're literally outlawed and nobody wants to trust them. But of course, those are the people that we need in order to be able to to save save the world, save the city. At the end of the movie, that's on full display in the Iron Giants. My favorite example, where this alien that everyone is is convinced is going to destroy us, uh, turns out to to be the one who sacrifices himself in order to save people. And I think Jack Jack is like he's obviously there for comedic effect, but. The thing that makes Brad Bird such a dang good director and a dang good writer is that he's not just there for comedic effect. He's a baby and no one thinks a baby can do anything, right? And a baby ends up being the one who is able to, right, have these superpowers and is going to be a part of the team eventually is the implication. And he pulls himself from out of harm's way at the end of the first movie without them even knowing it, right? They don't. Yeah. They're, they learn for the first time in this movie that Jack Jack has powers. They didn't learn it at the end of Incredibles uh, of the Incredibles because they just assumed that Jack Jack was normal. Yeah, that is absolutely right. There's that 
that great line where I think it's uh, Helen went in and she's like, Jack, Jack has powers. And she <laughs> freaks out because they did not know. The audience knew, but the family didn't know. All right. Well, last thing before we move on to connecting points is I just got to ask, do you want an Incredibles 3? This is such a difficult question for me because, I mean, the Incredibles is, and by the Incredibles, I mean the incre- the first one, the Incredibles, is easily one of my favorite superheroes of all time. One of my favorite, it is my favorite Pixar film. Um, and Brad Bird is one of my favorite living directors. So if Brad Bird is doing an Incredibles 3 and he is passionate about it, absolutely. I want to see an Incredibles 3 now. Like I, I want it. I want them to announce it. I want it to be there. But I, I don't want to see, I will go see it. I will buy tickets and I will see it because I love the Incredibles. I think it's an interesting world. And there are plenty of other talented directors in the Pixar sort of lineup. I don't re, I wouldn't really be as excited about seeing this without Brad Bird behind the helm. I really want it to be a Brad Bird thing. It's his world. Um, it's his idea and he's got plenty more good ideas where they came from. But so if he's passionate about it, they, and they want him to do it, I'm, I'm on board. Well, he has said that he had about three years worth of material, three movies worth of material, I'm sorry, that got cut out of this film because his his timeline was accelerated. When this film got – when Toy Story 4 got announced, this film's production got pushed a year up, and so he had to kind of rush as it was. And I think that might be part of the reason why we see some of those unfinished, unresolved themes like we did. So I, I too would love it if he wants to take that material he has and, you know, make this into a, a fully completed trilogy. I'm, oh my goodness. It would be my most anticipated film of whatever year it is that it comes out. But like you, I, I want him to do it out of passion because he's done both of these out of passion and it shows. And if he doesn't, then it's not going to be the same. And I would rather just not exist if that was the case. Yeah. So, so far, I think Pixar has done a pretty good job. Um, we've had the occasional misstep of trying to make like a Cars 3 when there really was no need for a Cars 3. Whether I mean, it's not a terrible movie, but like there just there wasn't a clamoring for Cars 3. So hopefully they don't make that mistake. But uh, yeah, I would I would welcome it if he announced it today that he was in love with this and wanted to finish it up. Okay. Let's move into our connecting points section. I'm sure you have about 13 of these. Um, if the opening was any indication, no, I'm going to, before you go, actually, I'm going to read Patrick's. Uh, this is another spot where I would have liked to had his input, but since we lost it, we're just going to do it for him. So Patrick's connecting point was Evelyn's capture of Helen and the reveal of her motive. Um, he actually said that my connecting point was his runner-up, which happens quite frequently where we pick a similar scene. So you'll find that out here shortly. But he said the moment that really connected with him the most was hearing Evelyn explain why she did what she did. I can appreciate sympathy for any villain when it's done appropriately, and I connected with her argument that there's this weird perception that standing next to those who are super super heroic, whether it's perceived or actual, makes us all seem small insignificant or weak. I was reminded of a trailer I saw for Ralph breaks the internet that there is this joke made about how one of the qualifications for being a Disney princess is that you have to be saved by a man. Sure. We don't live in a world where guys that fly on their own or have super speed, but the idea is very relevant that yes, other people are out there who do things better than us and it shouldn't make us feel small. It also certainly shouldn't dictate how we live our lives, uh, depending on those people for everything. So I thought that was a great insight. 
uh, and a very, very solid connected point. And I thought it was awesome that he pulled that out. I really like that line of the film where she brings that up about, um, you know, superheroes making us feel small. I thought that was a good thing to explore. Mm. That is good stuff, Patrick. Well, you're next up. What you got? The entire sequence where Bob is trying to put Jack Jack to sleep is definitely my biggest connecting point. I love when he puts the um, the card table with books on top of it, on top of the, the crib, because Jack Jack's already gotten out once. And at this point, Bob doesn't know that Jack Jack has superpowers, so he just thinks the baby's climbing over the crib and, and getting out. Um, but I, I loved all of that for its humor. Um, when he's reading to Jack Jack and starts falling asleep and Jack Jack slaps him. But again, that is just very, very timely for me right now. And my, my stint as a stay at home dad, babies have, even though they don't sleep when you want them to, a lot of times they have a remarkable sense of timing in the sense that they know when you're sitting down to catch a break or relax. And they know that that's when they need to turn it on or escape or do something crazy. And uh, so seeing Jack Jack do that was just just really made me laugh and uh, <laughs> gave me warm fuzzies and everything. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I can totally understand that because mine is for a very similar reason. And that is uh, for me, it was uh, very brief as well. And it was a combination of things. But ultimately, the biggest one is Bob apologizing to Violet. And then right before that, teaching Dash math throughout the whole film. I really resonate deeply with it because Bob is making these attempts to understand and connect with his newly teenage daughter and son. I have a 15 year old daughter who's learning to drive. And I have a 13 year old son who is very similar to dash in many ways. Um, he causes messes and he breaks things all the time just because he's chaotic. Uh, he runs around like a crazy person and he's very happy just like dash. Uh, my daughter has some similarities to Violet as well. Um, and I just, it was very powerful for me because like Bob, I am a fixer. I want to make things better and to watch him try to fix the problems uh, that Violet has incurred with Tony and fail is miserable. It's so sad. It was hard for me. Um, and so when he stays up, unable to sleep because he doesn't know how to do math and he decides to get up and go learn so he can teach dash how to do math in the morning. That was a big thing for me because I feel like that's something I would do. And then when he apologizes to Violet, he comes home after getting Jack Jack's new suit and he's just completely wiped and he's talking to her. And this is the moment that's made me cry in the movie both times. He says, I'm used to knowing what the right thing to do is. I just want to be a good dad. And any dad that has ever lived can understand the meaning and the power behind those words. Because that's all we ever want is we just want to be a good dad. We just want our kids to experience the best with no pain possible. And he's not been able to give that experience. And her response is, you're not good. You're super. This could have been cheesy. If she just said, you're incredible. This plays entirely different, in my opinion. And I think it's intentional that the word super is used because it's got a dual meaning. He's more than just super as a dad. He's also a super, and that's his identity, and that's okay. So he's both, and she's telling him that. And so this is the Pixar punch for me that I was talking about earlier. 
where it's not going to hit every single person that exact same way. But for me, it puts the movie over the top and it really just erases any of my nitpicks and leaves me with a greatness feeling about this film. So um, I can relate to it a lot because it's just a perfect time in my life. Like you talked about earlier. Um, It may not resonate with me in this exact same way 15 years from now, but today it means a lot. It captures that relationship between fathers and daughters so well. It's just this brief, expertly done, uh, extremely emotional moment. So that's, that's my stuff. Thank you. Well, uh, before we say goodbye, what did you think about bow by the way? Because there's a Pixar short before every film. So tell me your thoughts on bow and then tell me what your favorite Pixar short is of all time. If you have one. Yeah. Well, bow is the first Pixar short that I can remember off the top of my head uh, where I wanted to listen to the score. As soon as I got out, I really liked the score for bow. I guess I can remember lava, but that's for an entirely different reason that I am <laughs> not so positive. Um, but I really enjoyed the score and I bow has bow has grown on me as well. The more that I have thought about it, I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding the film for, for a number of reasons, but one, because of the, the twist where she ends up eating, eating bow. Um, because it was, it really was a, a shocking moment. Um, both times that I saw it, we got some pretty extreme reactions. Um, some, some shouts, some gasps, some, you know, oh no's, something like that. Um, but I actually, I really like it aside from just the shock value sort of thing, which is, you know, if it's just shock value, then, then whatever. But I like this idea that sometimes our, our, our love and our affection for things can become so misguided or twisted or even turned in on themselves that you end up destroying the very thing you love, which is exactly what she does there. I think, I think that's actually a really powerful thing to explore and how that ultimately um, wrecks her until she's able to reconcile with her, with her son. I, I, my personal, in my personal family life, like I have been separated from my parents. My, my grandparents raised me for half of my life. And so just seeing Bao reunite, with his mother and then just sit on the bed crying and eating dumplings was, was really powerful for me. Um, and, and just this being a whole family narrative, I think it pairs really, really well with, um, with Incredibles too. And they've done that. They do that fairly often where they pair something that just really, really fits. And I think this was definitely the case. So it's grown on me. Um, now as for my favorite Pixar Mm -hmm. short, I think I'm still going to have to go with Gerald's game because it's the first one I remember have good memory of seeing in theaters before Bugs Life as a little kid. One, I didn't even know what a short film was until I saw that. Uh, I was just like, what is this happening before the movie where there's a plot and everything? And I, I just really enjoy it. I like the silliness of, uh, I mean, we're both board game players. I like that they're playing chess. Um, I just think it's a, it's a fun thing and I, I have fond memories of it. It, it, nothing can unroot it from its number one position because of, of where and when I saw it in my life. Yeah. I won't go into too much detail on that. Uh, to, I agree with pretty much everything you said about bow. Uh, it, it did shock the heck out of me. Uh, the first time seeing it, the audience audible gasps, audibly gasps and, and kind of is shocked. And there's an understandable quality to that because you're eating a 
person, essentially, once you realize what is happening, it's murder uh, in a sense. And so you've got to take it metaphorically <laughs> and be okay with that. Um, and it does get to a place that's very sweet. And so I, I like it. I think it is quite um, emotional. And for that reason, I agree with you. I think it pairs very well with The Incredibles that's so action heavy. Um, but I don't love it. And I don't find it to be my favorite by any stretch of the imagination. I do really like the score quite a bit. I think it's very well done. Um, for mine, my favorite one would be Day and Night still. It's just the story of these two animated characters. Who one is day and one is night. And they're trying to learn about each other and come together and figure out how they go together uh, in the world and what they mean to each other, what they can both provide that the other can't. And for some reason, that one's always stuck with me. It's always resonated very strongly. It's the only short film I've ever purchased in my life. I bought it so that I could have it on my cell phone and watch it over and over years and years ago when it came out. Um, never done that since. So for me, I think it still still has to be day and night. All right, man. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate you sticking with me and being able to re-record our thoughts. I think we did them justice the first missed lost recording of Aaron Blaine and Patrick. Um, hopefully uh, listeners, we, we got you some of Patrick's thoughts as well. And you can always find him in our Facebook discussion group and ask him for more of his thoughts if you would like, or you can find him at shoeless patch, all one word on Twitter. Just send him a message and ask him whatever you want. And he will be happy to communicate and talk to you about the Incredibles too, or anything else. Blaine, where can people find you and your podcasts and all that good stuff online? Sure. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm always up for talking about The Incredibles and Brad Bird, uh, and I'll do it multiple times if I have to. So, yeah, put me down 14 years from now when my daughter is, is a teenager. Uh, we can we can talk about The Incredibles 3, hopefully. Knock on wood. But, yeah, if you want to keep up with me in the meantime, I think the best way to keep up with the creative work I'm doing right now is with my Star Wars podcast, Home One Radio, that I co-host with Josh Crabb. Uh, we talk about... We talk about Star Wars stuff week in and week out. We're really not a news-centered podcast. We we look at the various stories we have in, in Star Wars, uh, be it through books, movies, video games, what have you. And like I said, we try to keep things positive. So we're we're kindred spirits with um with what you guys are doing at Feel and Film here. So you can you could find me there. And you can find me on Twitter if you really want to send me um, a message. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Where at? Go ahead. Give oh, them yeah, your give them your very very. I have to do that. Name. Mm -hmm. I have to, I'm gonna have to change that, man. This is I, painful. Every you've it's, said that for like two years that I've. Known. I know, but it, I, oh man. Anyways, it's at d e p t underscore of underscore tourism. Mm -hmm. There's a story so to first, it. But... Your first tweet to Blaine should be, "Why is this your Twitter name?" Yep. Yep. All Spy right. Novel. Well, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, listeners, uh, if you want to interact with me, you can find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film Aaron or at Feelin' Film. I, I run the show's main Twitter account as well. Like I mentioned earlier, join that Facebook group. We'd love to have you come be a part of that. 400 strong members that talk movies every day, all day long. It's a great group of people and a growing community. And we would be honored to have your voice as well. Next week, which is going to be on a short week, we will be talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So come back and hear our thoughts on the newest Jurassic Park entry with another special guest. But I'm not going to tell you who it is. You're going to have to download it and listen to find out. All right. Well, as always, listeners, we hope that you enjoyed Incredibles 2. And we hope that you really enjoyed this conversation. If you did, 
leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. I don't think you can leave reviews there, but if you can do it, Google Play, wherever you listen to this podcast. We love five-star reviews. We love comments. If you're loving the show, we like to hear that. If you're not, tell us what we're doing wrong in a message, and we'll see if we can fix that. Otherwise, as always, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.